This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aleph Beta. How can we make Tisha B'Av feel relevant and meaningful for us today when the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash was so long ago? These questions may be impossible to answer, but on Tisha B'Av, they are just as impossible to ignore. With Tisha B'Av approaching, I want to encourage you to check out Aleph Beta's, Aleph Beta's collection of Tisha B'Av videos. Rabbi David Foreman, the founder of Aleph Beta, who has been a guest on the podcast previously, uh, in his videos explore some of the most beloved Tisha B'Av text to discover the deeper meaning and relevance of the day. For a limited time only, listeners of Sfarm Chatter get $18 off an annual Aleph Beta membership, which will give you access to all the Tisha B'Av videos, plus hundreds more on Parsha and other Yom Taivim. All you need to do is go to alephbeta.org, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A.org, and enter coupon code SFARM23, S-E-F-O-R-I-M-23, when you check out for $18 off an annual premium membership. And with Tisha B'Av being uh, this week, and I've mentioned this in the past, they have very interesting cartoon-like videos with the Torah, and it, this, it's really, especially for Tisha B'Av, you're looking for something to do, Tisha B'Av Day, you want to hear things about Tisha B'Av related, it's a very interesting, check it out. Again, coupon code SFARIM, S-E-F-O-R-I-M 23, for $18 off the uh, premium annual membership. Uh, also, the information will be in the show's notes. And just a little bit about the, this episode of the podcast is kind of Tisha B'Av themed, related. Um, it's actually kind of post uh, the Masada is, uh, you know, many listeners I'm sure have been there and, uh, this came up, uh, discussed this in the past in the podcast, especially last year's episode, last year's series, Judean Revolt series with Professor Guy Rogers, which, uh, by the way, check out three full episodes on the, you know, history from the beginning, uh, to the end of the revolt and the Horban. Um, but this is on Masada, so it's not on the Horban, but, uh, post Horban kind of the, the end uh, of what was, you know, then. So uh, that's what that's what this episode um, is about. And um, again, I would like to thank Aleph Beta for sponsoring the episode. And if anyone wants to sponsor an episode, can uh, email me, sfarmchatter.gmail.com. There's a link via PayPal. You can Zell Chase QuickPay, uh, sfarmchatter.gmail.com. Information in the show's notes. Um, again, it's $360 to sponsor an episode, but any amount is greatly appreciated. Um, to support the podcasts and for various costs and things that uh, the podcast uh, needs. Um, and as also, I appreciate the feedback. Uh, any feedback, people have given feedback on the Spain series that's been on, that's ongoing on Wednesdays and other just in general feedback or guest suggestions uh, for the podcast, I very much appreciate it. So um, with that, I guess... Uh, kind of enjoy, but enjoy like in air quotes, because this is uh, you know, kind of a sad topic, uh, even Masada, but uh, enjoy, you know, learning about and listening about uh, Masada and its history. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Jody Magnus, who is the Keenan Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we'll be discussing her book, uh, titled Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth. Uh, she actually co-directed part of the excavations at Masada in 1995, and we will be talking about Masada. So thank you, Professor Magnus, for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, right. So uh, I've pretty much been an archaeologist all my life. Uh, I um, wanted to be an archaeologist since I was 12 years old, and I was fortunate. I, I um finished high school in Israel, and then did my undergraduate degree in archaeology and history at the Hebrew University um, of Jerusalem, and then um, 
I worked as a tour guide at the Engedi Field School for three years after that. Uh, and then I came back to the U.S. And, and did a Ph.D. in classical archaeology, which means Greek and Roman archaeology at the U University of Pennsylvania. Um, and um, since then, I've, I taught at Tufts University for 10 years. And since 2002, I've been at the University of North Carolina. And uh, I have pretty much been working in Israel, um, in archaeology in Israel, right since the start. Wow. Okay. So you say you're always interested in, in archaeology since you were younger, but when, how did your, your interest, like I, like I meant, you wrote this book on Masada and you even <laughs> excavation. How, what, what did Masada, the interest specifically in Masada come from? Right. So, um, so all along, you know, my interest right from the start in archaeology since I was 12 was in the classical world. So the Greek and Roman world. Um, I just ended up eventually specializing in that, those periods in Israel, right? And so Masada falls into those periods. But after I finished my BA in Jerusalem, um, I did work as a tour guide at Engedi for three years. And so I, I, among the sites that, you know, I took people to for three years was Masada. So I became very familiar with Masada. Um, and then, uh, and, and Yadin, who excavated at Masada in the 1960s, was one of my uh, undergraduate professors at the Hebrew University. And um, then what happened is in 1984, Yadin died uh, unexpectedly, tragically. Uh, and um, when he died, he had not published a full and final scientific report on his excavations at Masada. And the material was uh, given to two of the other archaeologists at the Institute of Archaeology who oversaw the publication, um, Ehud Netzer and Gidon Ferster. Um, both of them, unfortunately, also passed away in the meantime. But uh, they were put in charge of overseeing the publication. And um, it just so happened that at that time, mid-80s, I had arrived back in Jerusalem to work on my dissertation, which had nothing to do with Mossad or anything like that. It was on the Byzantine pottery of Jerusalem. Um, but I was I was working in the Institute of Archaeology on that pottery. And one day, Gidon, who, again, had been one of my undergraduate professors also, came by and, and asked if I would be interested in working on material from Yadin's excavations because they were looking for people to work on the material. And I was actually interested in the Byzantine pottery because there is a Byzantine monastery on top of Masada, um, but it was already claimed. And uh, I asked, you know, what else did they have? And, and among the kinds of material that they had was military equipment. And I thought, hmm, I don't really know anything about military equipment, but it sounds interesting. And Yadin himself had been an expert in ancient warfare. So um, I said, I'll, I'll take the military equipment, which I eventually, another long story short, eventually co-published with another Israeli archaeologist, Guy Stiebel. Um, and that kind of is what initially got me involved in, you know, in really the archaeology of Masada. And then a number of years later, Gidon Ferster invited me to co-direct excavations in the Roman siege work. So um, that's that's kind of the trajectory of my involvement. And then eventually you ended up writing this kind of biography, let's call it, of Masada. Yeah, um, this was uh, this was um, uh, commissioned, actually. So it was a, a, a very persistent editor at Princeton University Press who persuaded me to write it. It wasn't on my on my radar to write this book, but um, but he worked on me for a while and persuaded me to do it. So so that's yeah, that's how it happened. Okay, so now I'm sure many listeners, I, I imagine, are familiar with Masada and Israel, where it is. Many probably have been there. But let's just start out uh, with Masada. Where is it located? Right. So Masada is located on the southwest shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, and um, so it's basically, it's about 
So it's about a, um, I guess it's about an hour drive south of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So if you drive from Jerusalem down towards Jericho, and then you hit Qumran at the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, and you just continue driving south along the western shore of the Dead Sea, you reach Masada, which is a mountain that overlooks the Dead Sea at that point. Um, so that's where it is. Okay, so we'll get into a bit of the history of Masada. I want to, I will say here for listeners, the podcast that in the book does go through fairly in depth a lot of the history at the time right. period. That were the main period that we're discussing with um, Masada and the, the suicide. We'll get to that. Josephus relates the whole story um, after the Chorban of Beis was destroyed. Um, and this is something that the listeners of the podcast familiar. I had a three part series with uh, your, your friend, Professor Guy Rogers, and yeah. his book. So I kind of we we kind of went through that history. So right. we'll go through it so in depth. Good. <laughs> but it is in the book. It is in the book. For those, and maybe we'll we'll probably get to some of it around. But let's yeah. off, you know. But yeah. you don't have to kind of recount. Just right. Sure. Story. No. No. And and I I also want to say I don't really want to go into lots of detail anyway because I want people to read the book. So hopefully this will be kind of a teaser and people will want to you know find out more by by reading the book. <laughs> By the way, Guy, Guy Rogers and I, I don't know if he told you, you know, how I know him. We were both on the Agora excavations in Athens together in the summer of 1982. Uh, and uh, we he organized these uh, pickup groups to play soccer. And, and we used to play soccer in our free time. <laughs> oh, wow. So uh, together uh, doing excavation work. Okay, so... But but let's start off with Masada, with the story as Josephus tells it. Though. We'll recount the story as he, as he tells it. Um... Okay, well, I mean, so so we'll probably, I think you want to come back to this at the end. You know, there are a lot of controversies about about the Josephus. So I think actually before we we uh, we go into that, let me just mention that Josephus, well, you know what I'm thinking now? I wonder if we should just mention who Josephus is, because before I start saying what Josephus tells us, people might not know. What do you think? Is that okay? Yes, right. absolutely. I should I should have clarified. Yeah, that. yeah, just just not take it for granted that people automatically everybody knows who Josephus is, even though it seems you know like so. Um, so right. So our our only literary source, the only written source that we have about the fall of Masada, um, or actually about Masada, really, is Josephus. And Josephus was uh, a Jewish man who lived in the first century CE. He was born in the year 37 CE in Jerusalem. Uh, he was from an aristocratic family. Uh, and um, and, and uh, what happened, and he claims to have been precocious as a young man and, and uh, claims to have been a member of different Jewish sects at various times in his life, including the Essenes, who are associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and then in the year 66 CE, when the Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans, the first Jewish revolt, um, the Jews set up a provisional government and divided the country into districts. And uh, Josephus, whose name actually, whose Jewish name, his Hebrew name, was Joseph, son of Mattathias, Yosef ben Matityahu. Josephus is a later Latinization of his name. Um, so uh, when the revolt broke out in 66, uh, Josephus was put in charge of the district of Galilee. Uh, for the provisional Jewish government. And uh, what happens then is that the Romans send troops to put down the revolt under the um, command, eventually under the command of a general named Vespasian. And uh, Vespasian marches from, from the area of Syria to the north, from Antioch down towards Judea. And the first part of the country that he reached was Galilee, which was the area under Josephus's control. 
Uh, and um, so Josephus was really the first person to kind of have to confront, you know, the Roman onslaught. And um, I mean, Galilee fell pretty easily to the Romans. The, the Jews just were not were no match. I mean, they they were outnumbered, they were outman, you know, outtrained. They didn't have the equipment. Um, and eventually, Josephus found himself holed up in a cistern on the side of the last fortress under his command in Galilee, which is called Yodfat in Hebrew or Jotapata in Greek. Uh, and there, uh, the there were forty soldiers. He said he tells us there were forty soldiers under his command. Uh, who decided to make a suicide pact instead of giving themselves up alive to the Romans, and they drew lots. And somehow, as Josephus himself writes, through fate or contrivance, he drew the last lot uh, and did not commit suicide, but gave him uh, himself up alive to the Romans. That's why in sort of the long view of Jewish history, Josephus is considered a traitor to the Jewish cause. Um, when led before Vespasian, um, just Vespasian did not kill uh, Josephus outright, but instead took him alive into captivity. And the reason is Josephus was very smart. Uh, it was now the year, uh, the year was now 67 CE. Uh, and uh, the emperor in Rome at this point was Nero, who was very unpopular. It was three years after the great fire in Rome, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Josephus knew his Roman politics. He knew that Nero was unpopular and likely wouldn't last much longer. And he also suspected rightly that Vespasian as a powerful general would probably like to be emperor. So he predicted when led before Vespasian that Vespasian would one day become emperor of the Roman Empire. And uh, so Vespasian doesn't kill Josephus. He takes him alive into captivity. A year later, guess what? Nero is dead. And a year after that, Vespasian was proclaimed emperor of the Roman Empire, and at that point, uh, um, uh, the, we're now we're now let's see that's sixty nine. A year later is the siege of Jerusalem. At when in sixty nine, when Vespasian was proclaimed emperor, he had to go back to Rome to be emperor. He left his older son Titus in charge of finishing up the revolt, which meant taking Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem. Josephus was present and assisted Titus during the siege of Jerusalem. And after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Second Temple in 70, Josephus uh, eventually then went to live in Rome. Uh, he was granted Roman citizenship. He Latinized his name, so he becomes Flavius Josephus, adopting the name of uh, his um, the imperial patrons. The uh, Vespasian's dynasty was called the Flavian dynasty. That was the name of the family. Josephus adopts the family name. Um, and he spends the rest of his life, uh, about 30 years, the last 30 year, years of his life, as a diaspora Jew in Rome. And uh, it was during that time that he wrote uh, a number of literary works. We have two big ones that, that have come down to us. Uh, one is the first one which he wrote is called The Jewish War, which is the story of the second, the uh, first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And the other one is called Jewish Antiquities, which is basically a history of the Jewish people. And it's from the Jewish War that we learn the story of Masada because Josephus chose to end the story of the Jewish uh, the Jewish war, the first revolt against Rome, with the fall of Masada. So our, really, our main or really only literary source on Masada is, um, is from Josephus's account. And uh, one of the problems with this and the reason why there, there are some controversies is because he is the only source. So we don't have any other literary source that tells us about this. And therefore, it's it's impossible to independently verify whether all of the information that Josephus provides is, is true or accurate or not. 
And the reason why this is a question is because just like most writers, um, and especially ancient historians, Josephus was not an unbiased writer. Um, even today, you could argue that nobody's really unbiased, but objectivity is not something that the ancient Greeks and Romans sought in, in their histories. They didn't seek to be objective. That wasn't that wasn't a concept that, that existed. Um, and so Josephus clearly has biases that influenced his presentation of the story. And therefore, there are uh, debates among scholars about whether um you know, parts of his his story are are true and accurate. And nowhere is this more true than in the story of Masada, since we have no other independent outside source that confirms the elements of this story. And that's something I know you want to come back to at the end. But that's basically, you know, where we're getting our information from. Right. Aside from archaeology, of course, right? But from uh, from from written information. Right, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it, well, the main part at the end that we'll come back to, and you can mention it here already, what he says, if you want about the suicide, he discusses this this uh, moving story of suicide, very famous, but for those that are familiar, you can mention it. I mean, we'll discuss at the end through your through archaeology if do have any way to see if it's true or not. So I don't know if you right. want to mention that here or just save the whole story for the end. Um, well, that's up to you. But but before we get to the suicide, so, so Josephus doesn't just talk about a mass suicide at Masada. He actually... What he does is he talks about the end of the revolt, right? So the end of the revolt officially, from the Roman point of view, the revolt ended in, in 70 with the fall of Jerusalem and with the destruction of the Second Temple. For the Romans, that was the official end of the revolt. That's what they celebrated. It was at that point that Titus and Vespasian basically packed up and went back to Rome, had victory parade you know, in Rome. So that is, from the Roman point of view, the official end of the revolt. But what happened is, is that after uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70, there remained three former fortresses still in Jewish hands, still holding out in the hands of Jewish rebels. All three were, were originally fortified by King Herod the Great about 70 years before the revolt began. Um, and these three fortresses were um, Herodium, which is near Bethlehem, um, Machiris, or in Hebrew, Michvar, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in Jordan today. And then the third was Masada. And so when Jerusalem fell in 70, the Romans, again, pretty much, you know, Vespasian and, and Titus pack it up, you know, well, Vespasian was already Rome, but, you know, they, they pretty much consider the revolt over, but they still have what they would have considered to be mopping up operations, right? These last little holdouts that needed to be taken. And so they sent troops to take these three fortresses in order. The first was Herodium, which fell apparently pretty quickly without much of a fight. And then Machiris, where there was a siege, but the rebels uh, surrendered before the siege ended. And then finally Masada. And the Roman troops arrived at the foot of Masada, either in the winter spring of 72-73 or 73-74. There's a debate about the, the chronology. It's not clear. Um, and so at this point, Masada is the last holdout. And what Josephus then describes is the Roman siege. Because in order to take the mountains, the Romans had to set up a siege because there were there were Jews holding out on top of this mountain, which is um, a mountain that's about, oh, it's roughly 400 meters high. A meter is about a yard. Um, and uh, and um, it's a, a mountain where the where you have steep cliffs going all the way around. So it's very hard to get up to the top from any side of it. Um, and so for the Romans, it would have been very difficult to take the mountain um, by trying to climb up and attack it directly because of the steepness of the cliffs around it. 
Um, but the, so the first thing that they did was, this is very typical of Roman warfare, was to set up a siege by isolating the mountains. So they they basically, they built a siege wall, a circumvallation wall that goes all the way around the base of the mountain. They built eight camps also surrounding the base of the mountain to house their soldiers. And, um, and, and, and by doing this, what they effectively did is they sealed off the mountains so that Nobody could escape and nobody could get in to help the besieged, right? So at this point, they're all sealed off. So this is very, this is very typical in, you know, at Jerusalem, the Romans have done the same thing. Uh, at Gamla in the Golan during the revolt, they'd done the same thing, right? At, at Yotvat, at, at, sorry, Yotvat, they had done, and so this is very typical Roman siege warfare, right? Um, the, the Romans, the, I, I should mention that the Roman army at this point, was a professional standing army. It's kind of like analogous to our army in the U.S. today, um, in that you basically signed up as a professional. It wasn't a, an army where everybody got drafted. It wasn't an army of conscription. So, in the time of the Republic, um, the late Republic, the Rome, the army, the Roman army had still been an army of basically conscription, where everybody, all citizens, were were you know required to serve at some point. Um, sort of like what we had in the U.S. at the time of the Vietnam War, you know, and then that, this compulsory draft, right? Um, but by the time we get to the first century and the time of Masada, the Roman army was a professional army where you signed up um, for a lifetime of service. So these were soldiers who were trained to do um, specific things when they were out on a campaign. And one of the reasons why the Roman army was so successful is because the Roman the Roman soldiers were professionals who were highly trained to do these things. So they arrive at the foot of the mountain, they set up the siege, and, and this is described by Josephus. I mean, Josephus provides the details of this. And, and let me make clear that um, that the that for pretty much for the most part, uh, there there may be a little outlier or two, but pretty much for the most part, what is debated in the story of Masada is not the details of the siege, that there was a siege. It's clear there was a siege. We have archaeological remains of the siege walls. We have archaeological remains of the siege camps. We have archaeological remains of the assault ramp. So pretty much what is debated is not the siege and whether Josephus you know, accurately describes the siege, but rather what happens at the end of the siege with this supposed mass suicide. That's what's debated. So, so Josephus's account of the siege is actually, if you look at the archaeological evidence, it's actually pretty accurate. He describes again the circumvallation wall, the camps, and then he says, you know, at that point, once the Romans had sealed off the mountain, and this is also very typical of the way the Romans operated um, when they were, you know, besieging a, a fortress or a city or whatever. Um, at that point, then they actually have to, they they want to attack, right? You have to attack. Now, how do you attack? Um, in this case, it's a mountain that was fortified. The mountain, the top of the mountain had been fortified by King Herod the Great, again, about 70 years earlier. Um, and he had built a wall going around the top of the mountain. And so in order to attack um, and take the mountain, you not only had to get up to the top of the mountain, but you had to bring siege machinery to the top, meaning you had to bring something like a battering ram to the top in order to break through the fortification wall. And so that's that's the hard part, right? And there, if you've been to Masada, again, you know, you know this very well, but again, with these very steep, rocky cliffs that go all the way around, it would be impossible for the Romans to march up with all of their equipment and then also carry like a battering ram and stuff like that and erect it and would be impossible to do that and then break through the walls. So what the Romans did, and, and again, this is very characteristic of the way the Romans operated. They did it also in Jerusalem, for example, in 70, was that they attacked the wall 
by building assault ramps against the wall, which means they piled a huge mound of earth against the wall in a spot. And then at the top of that ramp, that earthen ramp, they set up, uh, they built um, like a, a stone base that's kind of like a tower-like stone base. And then on top of the stone base, they built their, their battering ram, which would have been assembled from pieces of wood, right? And then um, protected with sheets of metal, of, of iron. And then they would have started battering through the wall, right? And so this is, and, and as this is going on, as the Romans are erecting the assault ramp, and the, the assault ramp is still there on the western side of Masada. Anybody can, you can walk up the assault ramp today. People still do. It's easier than going up the snake path, but you have to drive from the west by way of a rod to get to it. But you can walk up it today. It's still there. Um, and um, and so while this is going on, while the Romans, this is a massive, you know, mound of earth, right, going up the west side of the mountain, while the Romans are erecting the salt ramp, the assault ramp, and then you know setting up their equipment on top of it, the the battering ram and all, um, the of course the 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 Romans and the Jewish the Jews on top of the mountain were firing back and forth at each other. Uh, the Romans were, of course, firing to, to uh, firing arrows and things like that for cover fire, but also firing ballistas, meaning these big, like cannon shot stones. Right? So they have these big mechanical machines that you know that throw these giant stones. Right? So um, the idea was to keep the heads of the defenders down while they were they they were getting everything into place. And likewise, the Jews on top of the mountain would have been firing down onto the Romans, right, to try and prevent them from, from completing the um, the siege works. So um, so that, you know, all of this, everything that I've just said is, is consistent both with Josephus and with the archaeology. Um, and in fact, when you go to Masada today, you can still very clearly see the remains of the siege works, which I think are probably, if not the best preserved, certainly one of the best preserved examples of Roman siege works anywhere in the world. And the reason is because the siege works at Masada are built of stone, whereas in like Europe, for example, they would use perishable materials like sod or, or wood. And Masada's in the middle of the desert, so this was never built over. So they're still there, pretty much intact, and you can see them. So the, the debates about the fall of Masada, when you talk about that, you have to separate out the siege part from what happens at the very end of the siege, which is the mass suicide story. And we can leave that and come back to it if you want, or we can do it now, but but that's a whole, you know, that's a whole different thing. Okay, so we'll leave that. We can tease it now. We can get back to it at the yeah. end. You kind of finish your book with that. Okay, so now we, uh, we can get into um, Masada and the exploration. So there's a whole chapter in your book that again is a couple mm. of really interesting stories, interesting yeah. characters. I don't know, you can pick whichever ones you want to talk about. Uh, early explorers of Masada. Right. Two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so, I mean, there's a, right, like you say, there's a whole chapter on it and each one has a story and they're really very interesting. I mean, the very first identification of Masada was made by a couple of American explorers who never actually got to Masada. They were at Ain Gedi, which is north of Masada and they were kind of looking in the distance and identified this mountain because the mountain in Arabic wasn't called Masada, it was called Seba. And so it had a different name and it wasn't, you know, nobody had, I mean, the name, the original name had been lost over the course of the centuries, right? Because there was nobody living there for, <laughs> for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so they, they were actually, you know, these, these two Americans who were like standing in Engedi and looking in the distance were the first ones to make that identification. Um, and that was in like, I think it was 1838 or something like that. And, and so then what happens after that in the 19th century? So I should actually just just frame this by saying that in the 19th century, and especially as you go on into the latter part of the 19th century, 
there was a huge amount of 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 Western, by which I mean Europe, you know, Western European and both and American also interest in the Holy Land, right? In exploring the Holy Land and in the archaeology of the Holy Land, and all of this was connected to you know the Bible, right? These were guys who were coming to the Holy Land to explore and kind of you know identify things that they knew from the Bible, and so there's this kind of and so the the story of the exploration of Masada is kind of part of that, right? With these all these they were guys, sorry, they were all guys pretty much who were doing this, uh, but um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, there's there's you know I have I don't I don't I mean I don't think we need to go into the story of all of them except one thing that I will say and that readers will get if they read the chapter your your listeners will get um, is that that you know today to visit Masada today is is easy. Um, especially since, you know, Israel, um, after 1967, when it took, you know, the, the area of the West Bank, so the area, you know, from along the western shore of the Dead Sea, from, let's say, Qumran and Jericho down to Ein Gedi, that area before 1967 was in Jordan, right, under, under Jordanian rule. So that's technically the West Bank. So if you wanted to reach Masada before 1967, you had to go all the way around to the west side by way of Arad and get to the western side, the foot of the ramp, the assault ramp, and go up that way. Um, since 1967, the Israelis then um, made a highway along the western shore of the Dead Sea, which simply just goes right along the western shore, north to south. And you can very easily now drive from Jerusalem down to Jericho, down to Qumran, through Ein Gedi, and then to Masada. And that whole drive is probably about like an hour and a half or maybe an hour and 45 minutes, something like that. Uh, so it's really easy today to, to get to Masada. And once you get to the foot of Masada, if you're coming on the east side like that, which is where most people come from, um, then you can take the cable car up. And um, the cable car, there's been a cable car there since I think it's 1972. But in 1999, the Israelis built a new cable car that's even better than the old one because it goes all the way to the top. And so it's very easy to get, you know, and so when you when when you go to Masada today, you don't it's it's hard to appreciate the difficulty of the 19th century explorers who really had like, I mean, this was a way remote, you know, wilderness. Um, it was they for some reason that's really weird. Um, a lot of them, um, or at least in the beginning, um, many of them came to they they did their exploration of Masada in like the height of the summer when it's both hottest and of course driest and so there are examples of these early explorers who died because you know they they didn't have water to drink or they ran out of water to drink and they got sunstroke and they got heat exhaustion and they i mean dehydration and the whole thing some of them there are stories you know some of them actually ran out of water to drink so they drank the water in the dead sea which contains so many minerals that it kills you i mean just there's all these stories so i mean i think it's part of the interesting thing is to look back at um at the challenges that these early explorers faced and to appreciate even though not all of them were necessarily great scientists some of them were um but to appreciate what it took for them to be able to you know document what they did and and you know this is important because a lot of um in a lot of cases remains that existed in the 19th century have since been obliterated or are not preserved any longer and so sometimes all we have in certain cases for certain things are their records of what they documented along the way so i mean i think that's really you know i don't i don't think it's necessary to go into all of these you know various characters and some of them really are characters um I do think it's I do think it's important just to to mention again the 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 more recent exploration of the mountain, um, which is what so so people who go to Masada today, uh, 
um, uh, what are they going to see? So the the initial the the first Israeli exploration, uh, you know, Israeli expedition. Well, actually, even let me back up. Let me back up even a little further than that. So um, so uh, Jewish interest in Masada began already in um, the earlier part of the 20th century, like the 1930s. Uh, with, with it's kind of very intimately connected with the uh, with the Zionist movement, um, and one of the key figures in this is uh, was an Israeli archaeologist named Shmaryahu Gutman, who became famous later for excavating at Gamla in the Golan, where there's a sort of a similar story of of you know kind of a, a quote unquote mass suicide at the end of the siege of the Roman siege of the in that case it's a town not a fortress. Um, but anyway, he so Shmaryahu Gutman was a key figure in um, from like the 1930s on in um, connected with the with the Zionist movement in in bringing uh, especially youth, you know, Jewish youth um, into the wilderness to visit Masada. And it was like a big thing that you went trekking into the desert and then climbed the top of Masada to the top of Masada, which you have to realize at that time. To get to the top of Masada at that time was much more difficult, right? There was not only was there no cable car, but the paths that you walk up today didn't exist, right? They hadn't been developed yet. So it was a much more difficult climb. And and this was all part of this, you know, uh, uh, part of the Zionist attempt to establish a physical connection between, you know, Jews and the land of Israel, which, of course, you know, much of which had been lost in the intervening 2000 years and 70. So um, so this uh, this is where, you know, sort of the Israeli slash Jewish interest wasn't Israel yet, but, you know, started with Masada. And and then after the establishment of the state of Israel in the 1950s, there was an Israeli expedition to Masada um, in the middle of the 1950s that Gutman was involved with um, that was sponsored by the Israel Exploration Society. And that was like a 10 day long expedition that documented uh, pretty thoroughly, actually, the visible remains and conducted some limited excavations on top of the mountain. And that was where things stood until 1963. And in 1963, it was Yiga El Yadin, who, of course, had been chief of staff of the Israeli army um, and, and also, you know, one of Israel's most eminent archaeologists. So he then launched this massive expedition to the top of Masada, which went on not continuously, but went on until 1965 and involved um, hundreds of volunteers, both from Israel and abroad. Um, it was a it was a massive campaign. It was something that only somebody like Yadin would be able to organize because at that point, um, we're again talking before 1967. The only way to get to Masada was from the west, uh, and so you 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 either you could come around from the south, right? So you could have come to the foot of the snake path on the east from all the way around from the south. But even then, there was no cable car to get up to the top at that point. And so what Yadin did was establish his base camp where everybody slept in tents at the foot of the Roman ramp, at the, the foot of the assault ramp. Um, and basically in the same area where the Romans had had this engineering field uh, for putting together their, their siege machinery um, 2,000 years earlier. And, um, and you know, he organized this. And I mean, you know, again, only somebody like Yadin really could have could have done this organizationally. And and so most of the remains that that visitors to the top of Masada see today were excavated by Yadin. And subsequently, you know, some of it has been restored, um, of course, open to the public, and it's now maintained by the Israel Parks Authority. Right. So so that's what people will see today. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about those finds, about what was up there. There was obviously a shul, mikvah, there was rooms, there was pottery. Right. There's a lot of different right. things. So tell us what, what was up there. What's up yeah. there? Yeah. Well, so we haven't mentioned Herod. So I'll just mention because you can't really, you know, because the initial. So um, most of what people see on top of the mountain now is not from the time of the revolt. It's actually from, again, about 70 years, a little more than 70 years before the revolt, um, from the reign of King Herod the Great. Um, Herod was uh, a client king who ruled Judea on behalf of the Romans from the year 40 BCE until his death in the year 4 BCE. Um, uh, Josephus tells us that, that Masada had been fortified previously, before the time of Herod, by one of the Hasmonean kings. There's a debate about which Hasmonean king, um, which Hasmonean, um, that it had been fortified previously. But the archaeological excavations on top of Masada have been unable to identify any buildings that are earlier in date than the time of Herod. We do have some finds that that predate the time of Herod, pottery, you know, some scattered pottery, stuff like that, but not actual buildings. And so um, this doesn't mean that Josephus is, is incorrect. Um, what the reasonable explanation, and I think this is what, you know, people think, and that's what this is what I think too, is that when Herod fortified the top of Masada, he basically obliterated the earlier buildings. And, and so we don't have the earlier buildings. He overbuilt them, right? And so we don't have their remains. There's a very similar situation, by the way, at Caesarea, uh, which was also rebuilt by, by Herod, but where there had been something there before that. So, um, so Herod, uh, when he was client king of Judea on behalf of the Romans, uh, built a series of fortified palaces along the eastern and southeastern frontier of his kingdom. Um, and Masada is one of these. Um, there's a whole row of them. So if you go north in the Jordan Valley, you have Alexandrium Sartaba, for example. And then if you continue south towards Jericho, there's Kipros overlooking Jericho and, and Dok Dagon. And then if you continue south behind Qumran, you have Orkania, and then you have Herodium, which I mentioned, and Machiris on the other side of the Dead Sea. So Masada is simply one in a line of, of fortified palaces that Herod built on the eastern frontier of his kingdom. Um, it's just the most famous one because of the mass suicide story. If it wasn't for the mass suicide story, Masada would would just have the same reputation as all the rest of them, really. Um, so, uh, so when visitors go to Masada today, most of what they see, not all, but most of what you see there are Herod's buildings. And um, Herod built Masada, as I said, as a fortified palace. So basically what he has on top of the mountain are palaces. There's actually two palaces. There's an administrative palace and a residential palace. And then there's some smaller buildings that were also like little palaces to accommodate visitors and stuff like that. So you have these palatial buildings on top of the mountain. So again, those are those are the Herodian things. Plus he fortified the top of it. And um, we have the fortifications, which is the wall that goes around the top of the mountain and, and the gates and their towers. Um, so, so pretty much all of that is Herodian, and um, those buildings contain, um, uh, well, some, well, first of all, they're decorated, you know, they're, they're palatial, the palatial buildings are decorated in a palatial style, so you have mosaic floors and wall paintings, you know, and stuff like that, stuccoed walls. Um, and uh, there are also other features in some of the buildings, for example, uh, depending on who you follow, there are there's a variant number of of mikvaot, Jewish ritual baths, um, already from the time of Herod. Certainly, these also existed and were used and maybe added to at the time of the revolt. But at least in the time of Herod, there appear to have been some mikvaot on top of Masada already. 
Um, and then, um, then besides the Herodian buildings, um, what you see on top of Masada are the things that the Jewish rebels added. So what happens is, is that 70 years after Herod's death in the year 66 CE, this Jewish revolt breaks out against the Romans and bands of Jewish rebels go down to Masada and, and take over the top of the mountain and pretty much stay there for the duration of the revolt. And um, I should mention that the that the all the, pe the people who were on top of Masada during the course of the revolt, so basically we're talking about people who were on top of Masada between the years 66 when the revolt breaks out and 73 or 74 when uh, Masada falls to the Romans. So during that period of time, um, most of the, not mo well, maybe probably uh, most of the people, a majority, not, wasn't necessarily a big majority, of the people on top of the mountain would have been rebels who belonged to a certain faction, um, a rebel faction, a Jewish rebel faction called the Sakarii, which means the Daggermen. Um, and but there would have been other other groups there as well. So, for example, it's been suggested Yadin suggested this, and I actually think this is correct. Not everybody agrees that there were groups of uh, Essenes, the group that lived at Qumran and, and deposited the Dead Sea Scrolls in the nearby caves. That there were some members of that sect on top of Masada, um, and probably you know maybe other groups as well. But also pretty much certainly um, groups that were unaffiliated Jewish refugees who simply families who fled in the wake of the Roman onslaught and took refuge on top of Masada. So by the time you get to um, the beginning of the Roman siege, when the Romans seal off the mountain, what you have on top of the mountain is a mixture of Jews who are affiliated with different groups, but also probably just random refugees who happened to, you know, be able to make their way there and ended up there um, when the siege began. Um, and so, in addition to the to the buildings that Herod built, you know, uh, over seventy years earlier, we have buildings and remains that are associated with the these Jewish groups that were on top of Masada um, at the time of the siege, um, at the time of the revolt. And um, uh, Yadin found, I mean, Yadin found a lot of evidence of the presence of these of these Jewish, they were families, really. They were men, women, and children, right? So he found a lot of evidence. Um, many of them lived in uh, the casemate wall. So the wall that Herod built fortifying the top of the mountain is a kind of wall called a casemate wall, which means it's like two parallel lines of wall that are divided into a row of rooms. So if you can imagine a strip of rooms going around the edge of the mountain, that's what a casemate wall is. And uh, casemate walls are not uncommon in ancient military architecture. You can use the rooms for garrisoning your soldiers or for storing your arsenal of weapons. In the case of the time of the revolt, um, many of the Jewish refugees and families who were, who, you know, were on top of the mountain at that time lived in those casemate rooms. And there's, there's, Yadin found tons of evidence for Jewish occupation in these rooms. Um, lots of cooking installations, stoves, things like that, you know, lot, um, loom weights because, you know, uh, they were people, they were weaving, you know, and so lots and lots of evidence of Jewish occupation in those rooms. Um, also, by the way, stone vessels, which are characteristic of, of, of Jews in the first century, the um, connected with the observance of Jewish ritual purity, um, lots of ostraca. So, you know, little inscribed pieces of pottery, um, a lot of them with Jewish names on them. Um, so lots of evidence of Jewish presence in those casemate rooms. Um, and the casemate rooms are still there. But if you go into most of them, you won't necessarily see the remains of the Jewish occupation. But the casemate rooms are still there. Um, and visitors will see those. And then 
In addition, the um, the Jew the Jews on top of the mountain, not all of them again were rebels, occupied some of the other Herodian buildings. We can see vivid evidence of, you know, of their use of some of the rooms in the palaces. And also, in some cases, they built their own buildings, which are very slummy. Um, they're built of much, uh, much worse than the Herodian buildings. You can, you don't even need to be an archaeologist to see the Herodian buildings. They're built of these large blocks of stone, and the um, buildings of the Jewish rebels are built of these teeny little pieces of stone that are chinked, and they're very. They look they in the um, when the archaeologists were excavating under Yadin, they referred to these uh, to the uh, to the residences of the Jews at the time of the revolt as a transit camp. And anybody who knows anything about modern, you know, Israeli history will remember back in the 1950s when Israel was absorbing lots of immigrants and didn't have places to house them and they would put them in transit camps, ma'abarot, right, in Hebrew. And so it reminded the archaeologists of the ma'abarot, right? And you can you can really see the difference there. So um so so you know these are the sorts of things as you wander around the top of the mountain that you'll see um, the actual finds from from these rooms, those of course aren't on top of the mountain. Some of them are on display in there. There's a, like a little museum at the base of the mountain, um, and there's also some finds are displayed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Okay, so so really, all these kind of finds, these kind of confirming like, what were you saying before we get to the suicide of just what Josephus is, Josephus's account was first found by Adin and his excavations, essentially, right. Okay, so then when when you went now, just to get to you, when you went and you co-directed in 1995, what was that? Right. So what happened is, is um, in 1995, uh, uh, Gidon Ferster, who, again, had been one of my undergraduate professors, and I, then he had invited me to work on this, you know, on the military, well, to work on material, and I ended up doing the military equipment. So in 1995, he invited me to co-direct excavations in the Roman siege works, which I did with two other Israeli colleagues, um, Chaim Goldfuss and Benny Arubas. Um, Chaim Goldfuss uh, uh, is now, I think, retired, but he was at Ben-Gurion University most recently. At the time, he was at Hebrew University still, and, and Benny Arubas is still at Hebrew University. Um, and so we we co-directed these excavations for six weeks in the summer of 1995, June and July 1995. Um, and uh, I, brought, I was at the time, I was still at Tufts University, and I brought students from Tufts to work on the excavations. And of course, in six weeks, it's impossible to excavate all of the siege works. And in fact, it's impossible to excavate um, even um, an entire uh, camp. And so we decided to focus our attention on one of the Roman camps, which is uh, Camp uh, F, which is located on the northwest side of the mountain. And the reason is, and of course, your, your listeners won't be able to see this, but if you were to look at a plan of the camps that surround the base of the mountain, the Roman camps where they house their soldiers at the time of the siege, you would see that they're all pretty much laid out the same way. They're all pretty much square um, in layout with an outer wall, you know, built of stone, uh, with the four sides of the square facing the four cardinal points, north, south, east, west, but they differ in size. And there are two camps that are much bigger than the others. Cam and I should also mention there are eight camps and archaeologists label them with letters A through H. So A is on the southeast side, uh, south, yes, yeah, southeast side of the mountain, basically right by where the cable car starts today. And then the camps go from there northwards in a counterclockwise manner, um, right? So, uh, so F, we decided to excavate one camp, F, um, not the whole thing, by the way, just part of it. 
Uh, and the reason is um, there are two camps that are larger than the others, and that's Camp F and Camp B. B is on the east side of the mountain, and F is on the northwest side. Um, and the reason why these two camps are bigger than the others is because they were legionary camps. So a, a little bit of a background here. During this period, again, the Roman army was a professional army, but there were very broadly speaking, two main kinds of soldiers, legionaries and auxiliaries. So legionaries were sort of the main part of the Roman army. Um, you had to be a Roman citizen to serve as a legionary. Uh, and again, you signed up for a lifetime of service. And the legionaries served as um, pretty much the heavy infantry um, in, in battle. Um, there were also uh, some um, uh, legionaries who served in other capacities, but basically they're the, they're the heavy infantry. And um, then you had the uh, the auxiliaries who were drafted from among non-Roman citizens who served literally as the more um, mobile troops that protected the flanks of the legionaries in battle. So you would have, for example, light infantry cavalry archers. And the attraction as a non-citizen of signing up for a lifetime of service in the Roman army was that at the end of your your service, you and your family were granted Roman citizenship. So that was the that was the carrot. Um, so what we know is that at Masada there were uh, there was one legion that participated in the siege of Masada, and that is the tenth legion. Um, the tenth legion is a very interesting legion because they had previously uh, participated in other parts of the revolt, including uh, at Gamla, which I've already mentioned, and in the siege of Jerusalem. So the tenth legion was there at this time. A legion had about a little under uh, five thousand men, so around forty eight hundred men would would have been the full strength of a legion. Um, so we know that the 10th Legion participated in the Siege of Masada, and then the other troops would have been auxiliary troops. And altogether, Yadin estimated around uh, 10,000 um, Roman soldiers that would, would have been posted at the base of the mountain. Um, uh, my my colleague, Gwyn Davis, thinks that it's likely was much less than that because the 10th Legion would have been depleted after the end of the revolt. So probably we're looking at no more than 8,000, but still that's a lot. Um, that would have been uh, at the base of the mountain um, during the time of the siege. And so the camps, the sizes of the camps reflect the composition of the troops. The two large camps, B and F, housed the legionary soldiers, uh, so 10th Legion, and the other camps, which are smaller, housed the auxiliary soldiers. And we chose Camp F because we wanted to excavate um, a legionary camp. And of the two legionary camps, F is better preserved. It, it's less eroded than Camp B. So we focused our attention on Camp F. We excavated a number of the units um, inside Camp F, units meaning barracks, basically, right? But in this case, the barracks consisted of, um, would have been leather tents pitched over stone bases, because when the Romans conducted a military campaign in the field, they pitched leather tents. Um, and what you see today, when you look down on the camps, are the stone bases that originally had leather tents pitched over them. And so we excavated a number of these tent, they're really tent units in Camp F. And one of the things about the Roman army is because they were a professional army, they operated in a very standardized manner. If you take pretty much any Roman military camp from the same period and you look at it, you even without excavating, you know what you're going to find because the same kinds of units are always in the same location, by which I mean, for example, the commander's unit is always in the same location. The, the, the camp headquarters is always in the same location, right? So we, I mean, and, and 
you know, people had already looked, even without excavation, at the remains of the Masada camps and, and sort of pointed out where things were. So we focused our attention on particular units inside the camp during our excavations and found a lot of really interesting stuff, actually. So we excavated the commander's uh, tent unit, um, the Praetorium. We excavated the Principia, which is the camp headquarters. We excavated um, the Triclinium, which is the officer's mess, the officer's dining room. Um, we excavated some examples of what are called contubernia, which are basically the barracks or tent units of the regular enlisted men. Um, and so, you know, these were all like really, really interesting and um, help help us understand not just the siege of Masada, the story of the siege of Masada, but also more generally how the Roman army operated during a siege in the field. Okay. And uh, like we said in the beginning, a lot of this really, most of this is really discussed in the book, which yes, I don't right. think you mentioned yet, but there'll be a link in the show's notes for listeners from who can to where to purchase the book. And uh, so the one part that we didn't get to, we kind of teased a bunch of other things, we just discussed it here, is the suicide. Josephus right. has the famous story of the suicide. And so I guess say, say, tell the listeners the story and then we can get to yeah, these right. excavations, your excavations and yeah. what we know from that. Right. Right. So um, so the reason why Masada is so controversial is because of Josephus's mass suicide story. Um, and basically, when Josephus tells the story of the siege, he says that this is how the siege ended. So he describes the Romans finish the assault ramp. They bring up the battering ram. They start battering through the wall. And here I'm just going to omit some details, but they start battering through the wall. And at this point, you know, the Jews on top of the mountain realize that they have no more hope of holding out. And the um, the leader of the Jewish rebels on top of the mountain, who he says was named Elazar ben Yair, convened all of the men together, perhaps in a room that Yadin identified as a synagogue, which is a room that has benches in it for Jews, for people to assemble. So literally a Jewish hall of assembly um, and uh, gave them a speech in which he convinced them that uh, the best way to deprive the Romans of their hard won victory would be if they committed suicide at their own hands first. And he convinced them to do this. And then the story goes that uh, the men first uh, took their wives and children and killed them. And then uh, uh, all of the men got together and they drew lots. And out of those men, uh, 10 men killed the others. And then those 10 remaining men got together and drew lots. And um, one man killed the other nine and then committed suicide himself. And so the story goes when uh, the, the Romans came up to the top of the mountain, they finished breaking through the wall, they got up to the top, they discovered that everyone had committed suicide. Now, a couple of things, by the way. So one of the things that's so controversial about the male suicide story is that, of course, suicide is prohibited by Jewish law, right? So there, and the, notice, by the way, that there's actually only technically one person who dies at their own hand, and that is that very last guy. Um, but as my uh, eminent colleague, Larry Schiffman at NYU pointed out, Homicide is also prohibited by Jewish law, so <laughs> that doesn't really get you out of that conundrum. Um, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so uh, so then okay, so the story then goes. They came up, they discovered everybody had committed suicide, and and then the question is, well, if everybody committed suicide, how do we know the story about the lots? Like like, how do we know what happened? So the, so Josephus says. A couple of old women overheard the plans to commit suicide, and they they hid out in a cistern on the side of the mountain with some children. And when the Romans came up, they gave themselves up alive. And somehow, either directly or indirectly, 
the story was told to Josephus, and that's this is what he records, right? So th- that's how he records the the, the fall of Masada. Um, and it's very interesting, by the way, that you know Josephus chose to end his account of the Jewish war, the first Jewish revolt against the Romans, which is a massive work of seven books. It's a seven volume work. He chose to end it with the mass suicide at Masada, which is very interesting. Um, so so. In recent years, so when Yadin excavated the top of Masada, scholarship was such, and this was Yadin's view, um, that Josephus was understood, you know, as being reliable and, and was taken pretty literally, right? So when Yadin looked at the remains at Masada, he understood the remains, he interpreted them in a way that supported Josephus's account of the mass suicide. Um, but in more recent years, in the decades since, scholars have become increasingly um, skeptical of the reliability of Josephus's account. Uh, and I mean, the pendulum has swung in the exact opposite direction. I mean, there are scholars now who are like totally skeptical of Josephus's account. I, I'm not one of them, by the way. And and by the way, you, you talked with Guy Rogers and I know that he's not that skeptical either, um, but there are scholars who are skeptical. And, and um, it's not to say that we should literally take Josephus, everything that he writes is literally true and accurate. Um, but there are scholars who, who basically say we can't even get any history out of Josephus, right? So in recent years, what's happened is um, some scholars have questioned whether the mass suicide account, whether the mass suicide actually occurred. And again, part, the problem is we don't have any independent outside literary source that that mentions the fall of Masada. Uh, and, and what these scholars have pointed out is that um, if you look at Josephus's writings, you know, if you look at his other stories in the Jewish war and Jewish antiquities, you see that there are various episodes, not Masada, where you have a similar ending to the story, where everybody commits suicide at the end. And so what these scholars have asked is, well, is it possible that all these people really were committing mass suicide? Or could it be that Josephus invented this as a literary device to make the story more exciting? And you have to admit, it did make the story more exciting because we wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't if it wasn't for the mass suicide story. So it worked if it was a literary device. So now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. How is it that the Romans would have allowed Josephus to invent an ending to a story that didn't actually happen to fabricate the ending, right? Wouldn't they have objected? After all, the Romans were there, right? So wouldn't they object if Josephus is writing a history, right, of the war which, by the way, was commissioned by his Roman patrons, right, the Flavians, um, and wouldn't they then have said, well, wait a minute, that that that's, well, wait a minute, you got to take out that part and fix it, it's not true. Um, the problem with that is that, again, and I mentioned this before, among the ancient Greeks and Romans, there was no expectation of, of, of um, objectivity in the modern sense of the word. So when the Romans read history, they didn't read history to for objectivity, again, whether or not such a thing exists. But they weren't, that wasn't something they were looking for. They read histories to be entertained. Um, they read histories to because histories sometimes contained a moral, right? So um, that's not what they were looking for. So they wouldn't necessarily have objected to having uh, an ending to the story that, that was not actually true. Now, some people might object, well, wait a minute, wouldn't the Romans have objected to Josephus inventing an ending to the story that um, glorifies and elevates the Jews. Because when you read, if you read Josephus's account, it sounds like it makes out like the Jews are heroic and noble in preferring death at their own hand than surrendering, surrendering to the Romans and dying at the hands of the Romans and letting their wives be enslaved and all of that. So why would, wouldn't the Romans have objected to Josephus 
writing an ending to the story that made the Jews basically look good, right? And um, here you have to remember, again, this is all part of like ancient propaganda, right? There's no glory in defeating a, a weak enemy. There is, however, glory in defeating a strong enemy, right? That elevates your own victory. So by making the Jews look good, Josephus was basically elevating the victory of the Romans. They, they are a worthy, the Jews are a worthy opponent, right? Um, so that that wouldn't necessarily have bothered the Romans either. So when we when we look at it from a literary point of view, we're kind of at an impasse because you can make a case one way or the other that Josephus either is reliable or he's not reliable, right? That I mean, there's no, it depends on how you interpret Josephus, right? So then you might wonder, well, what does archaeology say, right? Does archaeology tell us if the mass, can archaeology confirm one way or the other? And here I have to say that the answer is no, archaeology cannot confirm because you can take the same archaeological evidence and interpret it either way, depending on how you interpret Josephus. So for example, um, visitors to Masada will inevitably visit a room or a, it's like kind of a little room attached to a large bathhouse, a Herodian bathhouse on um, uh, on the northern side of the mountain in the northern palace complex. Um, in this room, Yadin found what he identified as a group of lots. And uh, he identified these. So they're, they're little potsherds, pieces of pottery with, with names written on them in Hebrew. And Yadin identified these as the lots that were drawn by the rebels by these, you know, at the very end. What is the problem? The problem is, is that there are not 10 in the group. There are 12 of these uh, pieces of pottery in the group. Um, one of them, uh, the name was never finished. It was never completely inscribed. So Yadin discarded that, but then you're still left with 11. Well, one of those 11, very interesting, by the way, is inscribed with the name Ben Yair, because why interesting? Because Josephus tells us that the head of the Jewish rebels on top of Masada was Elazar Ben Yair. Um, well, okay, so Yadin said, well, that's Elazar Ben Yair, we can discard that. So he got 10. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it could be. Uh, ultimately, these these ostraca, these these potsherds, were studied and published, uh, and the the specialist who studied and published them was unable to conclude that they actually were lots, because we have plenty of other ostraca inscribed potsherds that were found on top of Masada from the time of the revolt, which have Hebrew names on them, um, and clearly they were used for things like like meal ration tickets, right? How many? How much? How how much food are you going to be rationed? Um, and so it's possible that the that those were lots, but it's also possible that they're not lots, and there's there's just no way to be able to say for sure. So that's one example. Another example is the skeletons. So you might have expected that when Yadin, so Josephus tells us that at the time of the siege, there were 967 Jewish men, women, and children holding out on top of the mountain. We don't know, by the way, if that number is accurate. Um, but it's clear from the archaeological remains that there were hundreds of people on top of the mountain at the time of the siege. Whether it was 967 or not, we can't confirm. But anyway, that's what he tells us. So the question is, when Yadin excavated the top of the mountain, did he find 967 human remains, remains of 967 individuals? And the answer is he did not, not even, not even close to that. So he found three skeletons, a man, woman, and child, who apparently are Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, remains, on the lowest terrace of the Northern Palace complex, they were buried in the collapse of the Northern Palace complex. 
And there are good reasons to assume that they're Jewish because they were associated with Jewish finds, like, like part of a talit, right, a prayer shawl, um, ostraca with, with Hebrew on, you know, writing. Um, so we have those three individuals. And then there was a group of skeletons discarded in a cistern on the southeast side of the mountain. And it's not clear how many skeletons there are there. There were there, somewhere between five to 25, but it's also not clear that they were Jewish. They could have been Roman. They could have been Byzantine monks, not clear. And that's it. That was all the human remains that Yadin found. He didn't find any others. So how did Yadin, who again interpreted Josephus literally, how did he understand that? So what he said is that, well, okay, so all these uh, Jews committed suicide. And when the Romans came up and they broke through, you know, they come on the top of the mountain, they find all of these corpses lying around. Well, you know, after the fall of the mountain, the Romans left a garrison on top of Masada for a couple of decades. Um, and uh, so what Yadin said is, of course, they wouldn't have left rotting corpses lying around. They would have collected them and either burned them, you know, cremated them, or maybe buried them in a mass pit somewhere. So that's why we don't have, you know, more remains than that. Um now let's assume for a minute that there was no mass suicide. Let's assume for a minute that uh, the Romans break through the wall. Um, maybe some Jews are terrified and kill themselves, but others fight, you know, to the death, and some are some die, and some are led away into slavery or whatever. Well, you still have the same thing then. Whatever corpses were lying around would have been cleared away by the Romans and you know cremated or or buried. So. In other words, the archaeological evidence is such that it, it cannot prove or disprove uh, the mass suicide story. Um, it, it can be interpreted either way, depending on how you interpret Josephus. And um, it's funny because some of the reviews of my book have criticized me for not telling readers whether the mass suicide actually occurred or not. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that we can't determine that, right? So if you read three, you'll see. The point is, is that we don't know. And in my opinion, we'll never know because archaeology is not equipped to provide an answer to that question because archaeology is a scientific discipline. And in order to use archaeology effectively, you have to ask the right questions. You can't answer every question with archaeology. You have to answer the kinds of questions that archaeology is equipped to answer. And this is a case of a question that archaeology is not equipped to answer. And so when that's that's my response, which is that we don't know. Archaeology can't tell us. I am an archaeologist. That's all I can say. Um, and as far as the way that Josephus should be interpreted, well, I'm happy to let the Josephus specialist figure that one out. But I, you know, that depends on on whether you think Josephus is reliable or not. Well said. And I, I think your book was very clear on that. I actually like that. I thought that that was true. I, I see it's funny. You said you had negative reviews. I read the book. And yeah. I was like, well, that's, that's good. Great. <laughs> that's real honesty. I, I thought that was, you know, like you're saying, you can't answer that. So right. one, one last thing just on the suicide as we finish up is, and you talk about this in the book throughout in different parts of the book, how Masada kind of became this like cultural icon because the suicide, the right. athlete used to go up there. There's a talk a little yes. bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it became, and this goes back again to Shmariahu Gutman, right, who really got this going. Um, and so, you know, by the time the state of Israel is established in 1948, Masada has really become a, a symbol of the state of Israel. And there's this famous phrase from um, a poem by Yudah Lam, Lamdan, I think it's Yudah Lamdan, from 1927, Masada shall not fall again, sort of the way symbolizing, you know, it's sort of like Masada as being a kind of a 
a symbol of the state of Israel is kind of this mountain that's isolated and, you know, surrounded by enemies on all sides, you know. So Masada kind of becomes a symbol of the state of Israel. This is why um, already from, you know, the beginning of the state and then moving on for a while, you would have things like um, some units of the army being sworn in on top of the mountain, right? It becomes a very potent symbol of the state of Israel. And by the time Yadin conducts his excavations, and, you know, that really seals it, right? Because Yadin's so prominent, and then he publishes um, a, a popular book that was v- read very widely. Um, and so all of that kind of together feeds into Masada becoming the symbol of, of the modern state of Israel. Um what I what I also discuss in the book is it towards the end is that, you know, in recent years, this has it's become less so, at least among Israelis. Um, it's become less so. And I think that there are um a number of reasons for that. One one thing that happens is, you know, this sort of idea that, you know, having a symbol of your country where everybody commits mass suicide at the end is not actually something that you want to emulate, right? Um, <laughs> right, not the best example. Um but but I think also a lot of it has to do with um, with the sort of post post Zionism in Israel. This post you know we're in a post Zionist era where you know the original elevation of Mossada had to do with the you know the creation of Israel as a Zionist state, and in a post Zionist era, it's become a less relevant symbol um, of you know for many Israelis. Um, that said. Um, I don't think that's true of all Israelis for sure, but it, I also think it's especially not true for diaspora Jews who still flock to Israel, you know, in huge numbers and have their tour guides tell them the story of, you know, the mass suicide up there. Um, and even even in the eyes of like the non-Israeli, more general public, that it's still a very potent symbol. And, you know, um, uh, there was a, a huge thing. I actually end the book with this. Um, you know, American presidents have visited the top of Masada. I have a, I have a, um, an, an old newspaper clipping that shows uh, Bill Clinton, Bill and Hillary Clinton, when he was president, actually on top of Masada. So American presidents have visited Masada, um, and there was a whole big thing when Trump went to Israel at the very beginning of his presidency for this crazy 22-hour-long visit, which was like the Israelis were like, I was there at the time, and they were all like going crazy. What can we fit into 22 hours, you know, and what's most important for him to see? And uh, he was going to go to Masada. I mean, it was really quite remarkable, um, but he ended up not going. And the reason is uh, Trump wanted to to go to Masada in a helicopter. He wanted a helicopter to take him up to the top of the mountain. And the Israelis, <laughs> rightly, in, in my archaeological opinion, said, no, 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 because if you land a helicopter on top of the mountain, it's, it's going to damage the archaeological remains. Um, and he didn't want to go, you know, by cable car, apparently. So um, he ended up staying in Jerusalem instead. But I mean, the potency of Masada still as a symbol is, I think, uh, you know, highlighted by the fact that, you know, as recently as that, right, we had this big discussion about an American president coming to the top of the mountain. Okay, so uh, one thing from the book, I realized I wanted to mention that there are 46 uh, pictures in the book. A lot of them are color images. And you do have a picture. You mentioned a couple of times the uh, the lots where they were yeah. lots. Those are all in there. You can see the inscriptions. So there's a lot of images. So I want to mention that in the book. And like I said, there's a lot more in the book. Um, the early explorers a very interesting part, and then there's the the whole history leading up to which. Which again, I will refer listeners right. to the series I did with Guy Rogers here, or read this book. It's in here um, as well. You do have in your book. You have a lot more that we didn't get to. So, uh, with that, thank you very much, Professor Magnus, for joining me. And like I said, I will put a link in the show's notes where anyone interested can purchase the book and read the book. And thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nafi. Bye.